Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also, this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today from the land of Georgia, well, not the land of Georgia, I guess the, the state of Georgia, we have Victoria Curie. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hey, Jill. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. What is the life like down in Georgia right now? Hot. Hot yeah. already. So hot. <laughs> <laughs> the humidity down there, I think, is what would kill me. I'm not sure about anything else, but I'm pretty sure the humidity would take me out. I'm used to dry weather. Yeah, literally, it's, it's awful. You're not going to see me outside until it's much colder. I, I don't think we have a fall. I think we skip it. It's like four days, maybe. And that's it. It's awful. <laughs> so have you lived in Georgia um, your whole life? No. Uh, well, yes and no. I uh, used to work in California, so I commuted back and forth uh, there. And um, I, I lived in the Carolinas for a little while, and then I came back here, so... I hear the Carolina beaches are really nice. They are. They are. They're really nice. Yeah. Well, someday I'll make it out there. I have friends who have a house on the beach out there, and I keep saying someday I'll make it out there. But <laughs> I want to make it where you are. I want to get up Yes. There. Come to Montana. Come to oh, Montana. We'll host you. <laughs> I would love it. Love it. I might not leave. <laughs> All right. We're redoing the basement, Victoria. So, you know, it's anybody's playground. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Victoria. She is a survivor and a mother of a special needs miracle child with more than 16 years of educating herself and countless others within the special needs community. She brings light to those who have known true darkness. She has dedicated a large portion of her life aiding those who are not in a position to help themselves. Um, she speaks to groups of domestic violence, violence survivors, as well as being an advocate for both survivors and special needs families. She's an author and she works throughout the year to help bring awareness along with toys for the special needs community. Her daughter and her have been featured on TV advocating for those with challenging abilities and also abused women. Uh, having become a survivor has made her into a pit bull to advocate for those folks. So thank you. That's a, that's a mouthful and it, it, <laughs> it belies a, a larger story underneath, right? You did a great job. <laughs> well, um, what was life for you like growing up? Where'd you grow up at? And what did you, what was it like? Uh, well, I had the most amazing grandparents. I have to put that out there. They, they taught me how I wanted to be as a mom, as a person, a friend, a woman, um, a spouse. Um, I came from, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I think I have a doctorate in the school of hard knocks, but yep. literally um, I grew up in a household of non-diagnosed narcissistic parents mm. um, that 
years and years and decades of therapy have taught me that that's basically who they were. I was definitely the black sheep of the family. Uh, to this day, not one of the parents have a relationship with both kids. Like none of us have a relationship with either or both parents. Wow. Um, so that's really challenging. Um, I don't, I'm in no contact with them. I wish them the best, um, but they have nothing to do with me or my daughter. And okay. that, you know, so be it. I didn't agree with a lot of things that they did, Jill. Um, I kept my mouth shut about it a long time. I, I do take my hat off to them. They let me come back um, when I had nowhere else to go for the, you know, with the abuse. Mm-hmm. But the way that we look at things isn't the same. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have the same values. We don't have the same outlook. I'm forever in debt to them for, you know, letting us come back and be there. But um, I I just don't do some of the things that were done. Uh, Like, for instance, my father figure, if you will, used to use me and my daughter as reasons to see other women. Like he would tell his wife, I'm going out with the girls or whatever. We'd be coming back from a doctor's appointment. He's like, oh, come on, we'll meet for dinner, you know, and, and I would go to meet him. And then some other woman would show up and my daughter and I would leave. We'd get up and leave. But he would make sure he called her and let her hear us. Wow. So I just wasn't going to have that. And then what really was the end straw for me is one of the times um, that my daughter and I were going to do something before a major surgery we went to Chattanooga for the weekend. And my dad said, you know, I'll, I'll go with you. I'm going to go with you, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And I said, we're getting separate rooms. Because to me, that's a little weird, you know. Yeah. I, that's just me. And my daughter has medical equipment and stuff. Right. So we get there on Friday. Everything's great. We have dinner. We start doing, you know, the fun stuff. And then Saturday, I had stuff planned for her to spend time with him. And then he kept looking at his watch and stuff. And then it was starting to rain. So we went back to the hotel to get umbrellas and stuff. And he's like, I'm going to go to my room for a little bit and I'll meet you back in half an hour or whatever. Okay. So then he messages me and says, what room number are you in? Because he was like, he wasn't even on the same floor. So he comes knocking maybe 30 minutes later and my daughter opens the door and there he is with some female. And I was like, what, what? (laughs) and my daughter was furious and so like she's standing in front of him like "Uh uh-uh nope mm -mm." and I said this is her weekend this is her weekend to do fun things that aren't medical you know and so he was like this is perfect time for us to go out and do things and you know and my daughter had been asking him forever to go see a movie with him and he I don't want to go to a movie theater I don't want to go into those things I don't like them well that night he took her to the movie theater and it just infuriated my daughter like of course infuriated her and so it was it was just like that was it at that point and then he told me that if I told his wife about it that he would make her believe that I was the one to push him to see all these other women which is ludicrous I mean it's not like you know I can't I can put you in a car but I can't make you drive it you know what I mean right right analogy I can give that's pg and it just irated me because we were still living in his under his roof and it, it guilt tripped me because I didn't want to do that. I already didn't have a good relationship with my mom, 
but I came clean with her and I had proof. I'm like the evidence queen after going through what I went through. And we're talking about Jill. I had like two inches thick of pictures, text messages, photographs. Like my daughter was taking pictures of them cahootling at the restaurant, having dinner, like, you know. And, and what did she say? She's furious. And he was like, I'll buy you a book. I'll buy you a game. I'll buy you this way that you can't tell your grandmother. And I'm like, I'm not letting her learn to lie. I'm like, this is not right. Happening. Exactly. Not. And you know, if you're unhappy, do something about it. And then I'll be your biggest cheerleader. But if not, I mean, you know, and he was telling even my daughter how horrible and cold this woman is. And she's just so negative and she lives and breathes for her son and they go on family trips together. I mean, I really think Jill, I was adopted and left on the porch somewhere. Oh my goodness. So my daughter hated her grandmother because of what she's being told constantly. Right. And so eventually I came clean and showed her everything and said, I just can't go to bed anymore without a clear conscience. I have to tell you, you know, you can do with it what you will. I, I, you know, I, and what did she do with it? Absolutely nothing. Cause some people would rather have all the money in the world where I'd rather have all the love in the world. And yeah. so I walked away from my inheritance that was constantly held over my head. Um, and it was a lot. And, you know, I'm happier than I've ever been. I have the love of my life and my daughter and um, my, my family now. And it's amazing. Right. You know, when you're raised in toxic environments, it's really about recreating the family that you thought you would have into what the family is that you really have and, and how powerful that is when you can readjust your thinking from, from one to the other and shift it and go, Oh, I do have a family. I do have a great family. This is my family that I chose. Right. Yeah, definitely. So what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, when I grew up, I wanted to be, at first I wanted to be a lawyer, uh-huh. um, which I did go into uh, law school, but, um, I was captain of the debate team and that was something I was passionate about was negotiating. Um, but I ended up trying to do any and everything I could to make my dad proud because I wanted to hear those words that I didn't mm-hmm. get that, you know, I'm proud of you. Like I've never heard my mom with the, I love you like ever. I've not mm. had that. Hug, but my grandparents were the complete opposite, like complete opposite. They were everything. And they really molded me and made my footprint of life, like what I want and how I want to be. So that, that was the, the challenge. Was to kind of find your identity in the midst of people that aren't trying to affirm who you really are. Right. And I mean, by the time I was 20, I was already an executive in the corporate world and nothing I did was good enough to get the I'm proud of you. Yeah. I mean, I've published a book and my brother, who I don't speak to because of, you know, him only hearing one side of whatever he's hearing from his mom is um, she's like, so what you published a book, he wrote a paper. That's so much harder to do. And I'm, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay. Wow. I, I, my heart breaks for him, Jill, because, you know, we have no relationship. I have said to him when we did talk a few times that he's come out homosexual. And I said, I don't care as long as who you're with doesn't put their hands on you in an inappropriate way. That's what I care about. Other than that, you know, I could care less if you're white, black, brown, gay, straight, bi, binary, you know, all the adjectives that are out there now. I don't care. But um, she makes every bank deposit for him. She 
goes to the grocery store for him. Um, he comes over like it's visitation from an ex-wife and picks up their tiny little dog and takes it for the weekend. Like it's, it's like a drive-through. He comes in, she goes outside, hands him the dog, puts a bunch of groceries she got for him in the back seat, and off he goes and he gets the dog. And if it nothing can come in between that, like that is just what it is. And he calls wow. her and texts her constantly. I'm so sorry, constantly every day nonstop. he's brilliant kid but he he hasn't done anything was like he doesn't know how yeah. and that's i wish one day he would wake up and see why yeah see why he's so captive to that right yeah. so you um are a domestic violence survivor and um when i an advocate and when i say survivor um I mean that in the largest magnitude of the words, words because you have been been through it. Can you? Are you okay with telling us some of that story? Sure. Um, I had the love of my life. To give you a little backstory, we were together four years. We broke up. I was devastated. He was my soulmate. He was everything to me. And never in my life, Jill, and I'm not saying anything about anyone who has. I've never rebounded. I rebounded first and only time ever. Found this individual, very charismatic very charming, not so physically attractive, but I want someone who's going to be genuine and true on the inside. Mm -hmm. For me, that's more attractive. Um, who really looked and found what it was I was missing and played that for his hand. And mm -hmm. I wanted a family. And so he used that to his advantage. He did meet my ex and they hated each other. Like I can't even iterate to you how badly they hated each other. Um, and so I call him the monster that he literally was just like, we've been without each other long enough. We need to start our life together. Let's just get married. And I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Like this just started. I was with this man for four years and now you're trying to get us engaged in just a you know short few months. Like that's crazy to me. Um, but I traveled for work. I didn't live with him until we were married. He really portrayed that like, you know, I've been overseas and I've had to do this and that and my life is miserable and now I want to have a family to come home to you know mm. we've been without each other long enough why can't we start giving each other what we deserve and have that life of happiness and then I would feel like a schmuck like why am I so rude resistant right when he didn't do anything like he didn't do anything and here I am like you know putting the brakes on um and I kept feeling that way and then I didn't listen to my gut and then he literally would when I was like hey, you know if you're the right one why can't we wait six months and it was well you know we've waited long enough and when I was overseas this happened and then you know I got hurt and he's showing me these scars and I'm like man I'm such a jerk because and then he would say I know you're scared and you're worried you're gonna get hurt again and I'm like but I'm not in love with you I love the person that I see but I'm not in love with you and he said well if you would let that wall down that was built by someone other than me then you could let me in and maybe you mm -hmm. would fall off with me. And then again, I would feel like an idiot. And he was so talented at this game. And so on our wedding day, this is horrible, I'm going to show my age, Joe. I was sitting on the floor in the bathroom with my Palm Pilot. And I was looking, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at flights back home because mm -hmm. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. But I just had something come over me saying something amazing is going to come out of this. And so I went ahead and went through it. And I was so not enthusiastic. It was just like, oh, Joe, come on, let's go get a coffee. Kind of thing. Not mm -hmm. like it's my wedding, you know? No, none of it um, at all. And then um, 
we came back and I moved in a few weeks after and we got pregnant shortly after that. And after I got pregnant, that's when the abuse started. And I started to see his real colors. Mm. And so when the abuse started, did it start as um, somewhat innocuous kinds of things? Or did he, um, did, did it start off as like control and those kinds of things? Or It did. It, uh, it was simple little things at once. And, and I want to make sure that I, I make this clear that one hit, one kick, punch, hit, slap, whatever is one too many. Right. I, I, when I talk to women, I'm like, I will never compare my story to yours. Abuse is abuse and it's not tolerable. Right. Right. I don't care if it's one time, you know, he testified in court. If he hit me once, he hit me 200 times. So that's not the point. The point is you do not put your hands on anyone in an inappropriate manner ever, period. Right. The rest right. of it is not what we're working on getting better in today's society. So um, he was very subtle in doing things like you were supposed to be home at seven. So, you know, that movie we were going to watch tonight, I'm not going to watch it. And it was just like, fine. And then it kind of escalated a little more than that. You know, oh, we were going to go out Friday night for dinner. Well, you know what? You came home late again. So I'm not going, you know, and I was like, fine. And then we got into a discussion about why dinner wasn't on the table exactly when he wanted it. And then he got up and he threw his cell phone at my face. And mm. I was like, that didn't just happen. I was in complete denial. I was like, that did right. not just happen to me. And then he got up and he hit me. And mm. I, I literally stood there and I was like, that didn't just happen. And he looked at me and said, why did you make me do that? Like, if you had just done wow. what you were supposed to do. And then I, I, I stood there and I was like, did I'm I sorry. do something wrong? Right, like, right. You know, I mean, and I'm thinking maybe it's my hormones because I'm pregnant and, you know, whatever. But I know he didn't just put his hands on me. Like, I know this man. And I told him, I said, this is not going to happen again. Like, this is not happening again. And then it happened again. And I went and saw myself going from this confident woman to the person who jumped at every noise, to wouldn't look you in the eyes, who looked down all the time, to having him follow me to work, I'd have to go in my office and call because my phone would show up on his phone's caller ID. Um, he'd have to know exactly where I was at all times. He checked my phone all the time. I had to get a new phone so he could have my old one little bit, you know, I kept my SIM card. Um, he literally just checked my whereabouts at all time. My ex that I was with for four years was a police officer and I was not allowed to go anywhere he could be, nowhere. And it was, if you're going to the grocery store, I want the receipt and you should be back here in one hour. Wow. And we were in a smaller town. So if I didn't come back in an hour for whatever reason, then he would show up at the grocery store or I'd see him on the way and he would turn around and get behind me. And it was, what? Well, I told you you had an hour. Well, I was getting sick. I had morning sickness. You know, I was in the bathroom and I was getting sick and whatever, didn't matter. So as time went on, the control got more, the uh, isolation got more, um, and then the abuse started more and more and ended up, I was in the hospital numerous times. Uh, I always tell people, you don't have surgery for something not broken. And now I'm like the Terminator, literally. I had metal everywhere. Uh, I was stabbed over a dozen times and I kept asking for help and I got nowhere. 
I mean, nobody. Were you asking for help at like the hospital or anything and saying this is what's happening or were you still afraid to say anything? Well, I've learned that the military covers up for their soldiers. Now, not every platoon is bad. Not every branch of the military is bad. I, I know. But the one I was dealing with, they were. And I know there's some great people out there and I appreciate their service for what they've done. But when I would go to his command and say, he's still beating me. I mean, you see me, I'm very fair. And I had a black eye or a busted lip. My nose is broken. It was, well, what did you do? Oh. And you know, here's my answer to that. And I love that this answer is out there. And I hope that your listeners will execute this answer. If you do everything to the T of what this SOB wants, but somebody cuts him off on the way home, somebody gets on his case at work, somebody doesn't do what they want him to do, he's still going to come home and take it out on you. It's not right. what you did. You didn't do anything. And it took me a long time to take that into realization because right. it's not our fault, but everybody says it is, you know, and we, the victims get scrutinized and interrogated and they get left alone. Like, okay, well, leave them alone. No big deal. So right. I would be just don't bother them or don't irritate them or right. I right. was taken to the military hospitals numerous times, same one, and they would just bring me back and fix me up. And um, they knew they knew what was going on. Um, they would trade favors, if you will. And like I said, I know not all of them are bad. And I have met some great military people. So um, when I went to my OB, who was a female civilian, she constantly made records. She took pictures. She had the pictures that coincide with the medical records. She called his command because a soldier doesn't have civilian rights. So she would call the, the command and they didn't do anything about it. He hit me in front of them. He hit me in front of his command. They did nothing. So I kept getting wow. more and more evidence. Like he broke my nose in front of his captain. Nothing, like nothing. And I thought, I'm gonna Unbelievable. die. I'm gonna die at his hands. And there's nothing I can do about it. And this just kept going and going. And I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I own what I did. The last time I was in the hospital, um, I was in premature labor. I was unrecognizable. And literally in walks his command, the, his two higher ups. And I screamed and yelled at them, get the blank blank out. I don't want you in here. Why are you here? You put me in here as much as he did. I told you this was going to happen. And I, and I own that. I mean, you know, people are like, why would you yell at him? What am I supposed to do? Offer him tea? Right, right. I mean, if they had done their job, I wouldn't be laying in there right now. Right. So I did. I yelled at them. They, the nurses said, you have to leave because she can't. She's too fragile right now to, to be in this situation. And they just they just left. Like, okay, we made our rounds. We can say we were here, you know, whatever. It, it just, it was mind-blowing. Wow. So ultimately, um, how many surgeries did you end up having? Um, I've had over, over a hundred. I've stopped and, counting because it's just depressing. And you, um, you, you were telling me earlier, you have enough metal in you to, to light up the world, right? Basically. Yeah. I get, I have cards that allow me, I squeak and it's kind of the joke. I'm like, oh, I need WD-40. I'm, you know, it's kind of the joke. I am the person that you have to have the silver lining behind everything, or I'd be the mm -hmm. most depressed person in the world. Right, exactly. And so, you know, I've had the best surgeons, uh, except for one. Um, and we always joke when I go on the table, like 
one New Year's Eve, I said, um, right before New Year's Eve, I'm sorry, the doctor surgeon says, what, what's your New Year's resolution this year? And I said, to be on your table less. And he goes, oh, come on, start smaller. And I was like, that's, that's not funny. That's, that's not funny. But um, I've had the same surgical team forever and they're fantastic. And I was literally having surgery every four to six weeks. Wow. And you've had your face, your face reconstructed. Yes, but no cosmetic, which I'm a little okay. <laughs> you would think after so many, you should get one of your choice, but that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're partially paralyzed. I am. I am. And I have, how did that happen? Well, the partial paralyzation came from my hand had been broken numerous times and I ended up um, getting carpal tunnel surgery and then they cut a nerve and it ended up giving me all sorts of problems. So I had a nerve transposition, um, a trans nerve transplant and uh, a bunch of other surgeries because my fingers started coming into like a claw-like position mm-hmm. and therapy wasn't working. Um, and the doctors are dumbfounded at the fact I've never taken the first pain medication, not one pill for pain med ever. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, as many surgeries as I've been through, I couldn't, I have a daughter who needs me at all times. So no matter how excruciating the pain, I couldn't take anything. So they've done approximately 14, approximately probably more um, surgeries on my hand. I have a titanium shoulder replacement. Um, My elbow has metal. My hand is plates. Uh, My fingers have had the bones taken out and artificial ligaments put in. Um, they're all pens and screws and you can actually feel them if you touch your fingers. Um, there's no feeling that's the ulmer nerve because you know, there's three nerves in your hand, or medial and radial nerve. And they're, um, it's where the ulnar nerve is on that side. So they'll actually take like a needle and poke and I don't flinch. I don't feel it. I feel nothing. I did a nerve conductive study and it killed it all the way to the muscles. So I've got nothing. They, they've offered me amputation. Um, but I worked really hard to get the wedding ring I have now. So I laugh about it and said, no, I'll just leave it because I've worked really hard to get this wedding ring. Right. <laughs> so it's staying always, on. always a silver lining. <laughs> it is. And even though it's, you know, my hand is clawed and it's kind of curved, that ring, that ring is getting on and it's staying yeah. there. So now it. tell me this, answer the question that everybody always that the people always ask, which is why didn't you just leave? I'm so glad you you asked me that because you can't just get up and leave. Right. It's not that simple. I actually talk a lot about this when I'm doing a speaking engagement. Um, You can't just get up and leave. I tried. And when I tried, he shot and killed our dog to show me what he would do to me if I left. (sighs) And so we have all of the records. This was never Jill, a he said, she said case ever. Um, 1000% of everything is documented, everything. And I learned then that I am more in a fight or flight than ever at that Mm -hmm. point. Uh, You have to have a secure escape plan in place or you're bound to fail at it. That's why so many women go back. They don't have the support. They don't have the resources. And that's why I do what I do, because you can get out, you can bring back your inner light, you can be independent again, you can go from the highest part of your life to the lowest part, which is when you're with this scum, to back up 
to the highest part again, you can be happy. You just have to have the resources to do it. Right. I literally did not know where I was going to go. Um, I didn't have my stuff together in regards to, I was petrified that he was going to take my daughter away from me because he was the, the biological sperm donor. It's the best I can say about him. Um, and I needed to get enough evidence and I needed to get out and I needed to be able to get her out and keep her away from him. Right. So um, when people say, why didn't you just leave? You know, it, it's always the people who say that who've never had to walk in our shoes. Absolutely. And I, and I say to them, you know, if you found out, God forbid, you had a brain tumor, would you go to a podiatrist? No, of course not. So if you can't understand what we're unfortunately an expert in, don't try to give us that advice. Instead of trying to literally and metaphorically kick us while we're down, be part of our process of healing yes. instead. Yes. Be a part of it, whether we're not ready to talk about it yet, and you can just sit in the room with us and make us feel like we're not alone for the first time in a long time, or you, we want to talk and you just listen to us, give us, you know, ref, give us a place to come stay if that's what we need, mm -hmm. or maybe you're afraid to ha have us in your home because of the situation. Well, then, you know, maybe you can help us find somewhere to go for a little while. Right. Or resources yeah. or right. right. Connections. Right. right. You know, something people um i come from a highly abusive background and and i went through this stage when i was with a new family that was that was safe and and i would just go with this longing that i should be back with my with my parent because the crazy that you know is more familiar than the crazy that you don't know. And so right. it seems like at least I'm going to go back where I think I know what the triggers are, or I think I know what's predictable, even though that's terrible, it's because it's familiar, right? Yes. And people don't understand that dynamic. Like my sisters would say, why, why do you want to go back with her when she's the reason you're here? I'm like, cause at least I feel like I know the rules, which is a fallacy because there are no rules that, you know, but that's kind of what gets made up in your head. What part of what gets made up in your head, right? Right. And that's such a good point, Jill, because I tell people, you know, you might not think you're worth it, but you're here today. So part of you somewhere, even subconsciously knows that you are, and you need to think about the fact that if you have children, for instance, let's say your daughter sees this, well, she's seeing it's okay for dad or a boyfriend to treat her mom that way. So that's right. how she's going to expect a boy to treat her. If you have a son, he's learning that that's okay to treat mom that way. Right. It's okay to treat a woman that way. And you don't want your daughter to be in that situation. You don't want your husband to raise a son that way or a boyfriend that way. And if he's hitting you, he's going to hit those kids. It's a matter right. of time. It's a matter so, of time. You need to realize that you are their protection, you are their shield, you are their safety. And so you need to do this for them if you're not ready to do it for yourself yet. Right. You know, I think that's so important. You know, you talk about your grandparents and what imprinting they did on you as a, as a little person about what, what was good and what was right and what, you know, those kinds of things. That's the same kind of negative imprinting that can happen on our children when we don't, when we don't reinforce what is good and right. Right. Absolutely. And then they go to school and they act out and they're bullies because they can't vent their emotion at home because they're afraid right. of the repression that's going to happen. And then they get in trouble at school, but they're striving and thriving for attention, whether it's positive or negative. I mean, right. these kids are screaming out 
but nobody's listening. You know, I use the analogy that what I went through was like being a chronic asthmatic living in a smoker's environment in my own personal health. Yep. That's yep. what it is. You're strangled. You can't breathe. And right. kids are the same way. I mean, this is what they're learning is acceptable behavior as an adult, as a partner, as a spouse, as a friend. And this is becoming their normal. They don't know different. And that's why we have to get in front of it. Right. So how old was your daughter when you finally, when you finally got away? Three months. Three months. Good. So she was a very little person. So did you ever imagine that you would become an advocate and an author and all of these things as you were walking through this, or was it just a matter of survival? No, we were in the NICU for months, for three months, and I had no one with me. I went through this by myself. And so I literally used my laptop as a screen, if you will, for me to scream into. They induced my daughter in a medically induced coma because she was coding every single day. Um, then they, uh, she was having grandma seizures every day. So I had to make the decision with the doctors to put a tracheostomy in her, mm-hmm. which you know, it's quite challenging. And then they put her in a medically induced coma. Uh, and so you can't stimulate her. Like I would sing right. her and I'd books to her and I wanted her to constantly hear my voice. So I would sit there and I was just screaming Jill into my laptop about everything that happened. And I was so angry and I couldn't yell and I couldn't, I felt like this broken dove who couldn't fly anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just literally kept writing. And then I had an amazing um, respiratory therapist who came in and said, you are doing an injustice if you don't print that. And I said, are you crazy? Have you met him? And she's like, we all have. And, you know, because my, my medical record came with her because she was life flighted. And so, you know, he had to come up and I was still in the other hospital and register her. So they had seen him and they knew of him. And so um, she said, you would save somebody's life. And she's like, because I just see you. And I said, I'm not writing a book. I'm writing what happened because I'm getting constantly interrogated. They're coming here to the hospital while I'm watching my daughter fight for her life, asking me what day of the week was it he broke your nose? What was the weather like? What time of day was it? And I said, who is watching the clock, watching the weather and looking around to see who's watching when you're getting your face meshed in? I'm not. And if I was, there's something really wrong. Right, right. And so- I was just constantly, and then if you say, you know, maybe it was a Wednesday, maybe it was a Thursday, and it, well, then maybe it just didn't happen. You can't do this to yourself. Like, uh, we have right. photographs where he strangled me, and then they tried to say I strangled myself. Well, how do you strangle yourself when the photos show thumbs here, and if you try to do it to yourself, you have your, your four fingers there. You, right. It's stupid. I mean, come on, people. That's crazy. I just started writing and writing and writing. And then um, my daughter was having 15, 20 appointments a week. And the doctor, the chief at the time doctor said to me, you know, every time I see you, you're making a kid smile. You're working with the family and telling them, oh, you can get this. You can get that. You got to go this way and this way. You need to be an advocate for special needs. And I said, what? And he's like, you would just help so many because you're so about kids. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that would be a huge honor. And I appreciate you all, you know, suggesting it. So then I had somebody come to me and say, didn't you go through domestic violence? And I said, I did. And um, they said, well, we have a situation with a family member. And I said, I'm happy to talk to them. And then it just kind of went from there and there. 
And the platform I've always had was a contagious smile. Every smile tells a story. So it doesn't matter if your face is broken. If you're in the process of surgery, you can still smile. It tells a story and that story is going to help heal somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to come back to a contagious smile, but I want to ask real quick, were your daughter's um, complications at all due to the abuse that you received? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's hard to, hard to swallow. So, um, so tell me about, um, who kicked first. That's the memoir that I wrote, um, while she was in the hospital is when I started it. Um, talking about everything I went through. The only things that have changed are the geographics and the names. That's it. Okay. And there is a thousand percent factual. Um, and it just documents, what it's like and what I went through and I've never read it I know that sounds ironic um no I understand I put in there in the very beginning please please forgive any grammatical errors because I wrote this to scream and then if you were to pick it up and say go to page whatever and you're like oh this is da 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 I can say I can stop you and I can tell you verbatim the rest of it without looking at it because it's the truth and when you tell the truth you don't have to recall anything it's automatically there so, yeah. So did this go into the court system then? The book? Right. No, your your case. Oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. It did. And what was the results of that? I had him dead to rights on nine felonies, but because of how it was done, he got away with it and the whole double jeopardy and all that made it where he got away with it. Um, and it wasn't, like I said before, it wasn't, he said, she said, we had photographs, we had witness statements, I had sworn affidavits, um, I had medical records that coincide with the photographs, and it went so far, Jill, we had recordings where he just bragged about what he was doing, I mean, just bragged, and it's his voice, and I kept saying his name, and he'd answer to it, so it's authenticated who he is, you know, and I would say things to make people know when this was done, and we had all that, but the technicality of how the warrants were taken out and how the process went was what got it thrown out. And that was. Which highlights another complication um, when people, when, when men or women try to get away from their abusive situation and they want to prosecute and they want to go, there is such a high burden of proof that is almost yes. insurmountable and, and the complications the of that. And it's put on the victim to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my second book is about to come out. Um, and what I did on this one, and I, I have gone back through it, is it's kind of a workbook kind of sort of of how to do everything. Like, how do you go get a TPO? What do you need to take with you? How do you get a, a police protective order? How do you get a restraining order? How do you do this? How do you do that? Because no one told me and right. you know, the evidence how to do this and then how you can safely rebuild your identity without him being able to find you. And I tell you all different ways to do that, how to make yourself safe again. Um, Just things that nobody told me that I wish that I had. It's kind of like your girlfriend, best friend way of getting out and staying out and staying alive. Good. Good. So tell me about the work that Contagious Smile does. A Contagious Smile, um, there's a bunch of different things. We have, I've been doing this now for over 16 years and I've done it pretty much pro bono on my own and now it's getting quite challenging to do that as everybody knows how things are changing in our world today but um if you go to the uh, website you'll look at things and it looks like it's for special needs which it is 
but there is a lot of resources there for domestic violence, but it is there where if somebody comes in, it can look like it's for kids. So it, it does do that. Um, if you go into any of the, like it says, services, classes, things of that nature, and then it'll say learn more and you click on it. There's actual pictures of my abuse. Some of my abuse pictures are up there. It gets that raw because I want them to know, you know, you can go to, everybody needs to go to a therapist who's been through this. They need professional help. But if you have someone that you know has been in your shoes and walked in that corner with you, then to me, it makes it a little bit easier to trust. Absolutely. So I've been as real and upfront as I can be by providing that. And we offer support groups that are free. We offer uh, social classes that are free to help you get back into there. And it's a safe haven. It's a bully-free, judgment-free, safe place where you can be you without judgment and be amongst others like us and just be yourself without worrying what's around and what's behind you. And then I help with life skill classes, maybe help teach a different way to go back out in the workforce. I'll help you do your resume, write you a letter of recommendation. Uh, there's classes in there. I do what's called Writer Wednesday. You can do your journal, mm -hmm. help write a book. We're about to do summer camps. Um, we also do, I do a lot of legal preparation. I graduated top of my class from paralegal school. So I show all of the different avenues that you can do for legal documentations. One thing I stress to people, and like I said, I'm not a lawyer, but you can, like your medical POA, if you're in the hospital, and thank God I had this put this way, if you're in the hospital and something happens and you become incapacitated, your power of attorney comes into factor. Well, right. if, you have, if you have that done and say, hypothetically, I had you as my POA, well, when I became incapacitated for whatever reason, they can't ask your abuser what you, they want to have done. And your abuser won't know about it because the hospital keeps it on file. So you don't have to worry about him right. finding it or her finding it. And so that's another thing you can do to keep yourself safe. So all of those things are on there. We're also um, starting to breed here soon. We've, we literally are building our own kennel system because um, special needs sport dogs, there's a five plus year waiting list. And that's crazy. Really? These kids can't wait five years, you know? Right. Um, and so we are, my husband, uh, who actually was my soulmate from before that I broke up, that we broke up and now we're together. Um, he was a police officer and a canine officer. And so we have literally built a canine system out of our own pocket. And then we're going to be breeding golden retrievers and helping place them with the families that need them um, at, you know, exactly our cost but we have to start trying to get donations to come in to help right right uh, definitely so we're doing that as well and like I said we're about to do summer camp and do all sorts of fun things for not just the kids but we're also going to do it for women and helping them find themselves and reinvent themselves and right. bringing back the happiness from within yeah, absolutely. So people want to know more. Is a contagioussmile.com the best place to go to find out more about you or how to connect with your resources? It is also if you go to Facebook and do a contagious smile support group, um, invite yourself. There's a few questions you have to do. That's because we vet you to make sure you're who you say right. you are. We don't let the wolves in. Uh, we keep them out. And then uh, we have Instagram, we have YouTube, where you'll see that uh, my daughter's had some pretty famous people who have been supportive of her. Uh, we have up there and we do videos of stuff we've been doing, um, fundraising and things over all the years. And then uh, the podcast also. 
Well, great. Great, great. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it's a lot to share all the time, but I just appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to invest time into us and into our own journeys. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.